I want to take you on a quick journey to my office at work. So imagine you're in some undisclosed location in Arlington, Virginia. You walk through a plain building that has no uh, signs on it besides its designation. You walk by a security guard. You scan your badge, unlocking the elevator. You go up a certain amount of flights, which I won't mention. You open up the elevator. You see another locked door, which you then scan again to come in to the building. Then you go away from everyone, Lord bless me, where everyone was here and I was over here. You go into a uh, desk, a office area. There's a, there's a sliding glass door. You unlock your private office. You open it up and what do you see in there? Well, there's a couple interesting things that you see in there. Some things that you might expect to see in there. You see a desk, a chair, office supplies, some of the things. If you look over on the left... As soon as you walk into my office, you'll see this giant parrot. And everything in my office has a story. So why do I have a giant parrot in my office? I'm glad you asked. The reason is, is because the last person who had the office had the parrot. I thought it was strange, but I just left it there. There's really not much significance to the parrot. Sometimes people ask me about the parrot. It's just there. But there's other things in my office that have more significance. You'll see pictures of my children. One time the children came into the office, we had a bring your kid to work day, and they got their fingerprints, and they had their badge done, and it was really quite wonderful. You'll see pictures of my kids, you'll see a quote from Spurgeon, that Spurgeon says, better to teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. And then you'll see Rene Descartes, some quotes from him, but you'll also see a quote from Socrates that says this, an unexamined life. Do you know the end of that quote? Is not worth living. An unexamined life is not worth living. We're often distracted. Often we are doing all these various things, but looking up and contemplating our being, our reality, asking the big questions as to a God. What's going to happen after we die? Or another big question is why are we here? What is the purpose of life? And as I look around this congregation, the answer to that question is the same but somewhat different than the context I was just yesterday at the Karis House preaching to the homeless women. Because in that context, the likelihood that the people are saved there is much slimmer than the likelihood that you all are saved. So when I was there, what I wanted to press on the women of what is the purpose of life, well, there's a catechism question that's famous, What is the purpose of life? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But the main focus of my message there was really to tell these women that the purpose of life is to know God and to be saved so that you can dwell with Him forever. But I look around the congregation here and I suspect that many of you have already believed that message. You've repented. You've entrusted your life to Jesus Christ. You were saved. So the question is, what is the purpose of your life? Why are you here? Why have you not just floated away. Why, God, why has God not called you home? Well, the answer, of course, is still the same, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but it's a little different. It's no longer to be saved, but something else. And we're going to look at that today. Of why did God leave you here? What's the purpose of your life, particularly? Why are you still here? Why do you still have days that the sands of time for you have not yet disappeared? So we're going to look at that, but I do want to read something from Hebrews 2 to give you one answer, and then we'll look at our passage to give you another answer of why you're here. 
This was a passage that I'm very familiar with that Pastor Neil read recently, and it struck me. I wonder if it'll strike you. It's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, we must play, pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And that message struck me. I've, I don't know how many times I've read that, but it struck me that last part. We must pay close attention. Actually, it says we must pay much closer attention. We must be more alert. And then it says, lest we drift away. That's a warning in God's word. One reason that we're here is we need to hold on to what we have. Hold on to what we have received, lest we drift away. That's biblical language. The Bible also uses the language of making shipwreck your faith. That's why you're not here is to drift away. Why you're not here is to make shipwreck your faith. Why you're not here is to be removed from the vine. Why are we here? Well, please turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 14. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Here's what the word of the Lord says. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is an interesting and somewhat difficult passage. This is one of the passages where I much prefer to listen to the Bible and really listen to anything, for that matter, than to read. But this is one of the passages that's almost dizzying when you listen to it. You almost think you're on some kind of repeat, and you're confused about what you've just heard. There's so much density to this, uh, but it can become somewhat confusing to understand what is going on. But, but if we just scan out, we can see a couple things. One, he's doing triplets. Do you see that? There's three individual types that he's talking about. He's doing in verse 12, little children, verse 13, fathers, verse the end of verse 13, young men. And he says it again, children, fathers, young men. Now, what are these? These are the cycles of life. We all start off as children. In fact, we go very, when does life begin? When did your life begin? You particularly, when did you come into being? At conception. You have conception, implantation, development within the womb, coming out, being born. You have your birthday, not your existence day. That did not come into existence. It just came out. And then you go from a baby to a child, from a child, that weird stage, that puberty stage, where everything just goes haywire. And then you, that puberty stage is a transformation from child to young adult, young adult into a full-aged adult, which often includes fatherhood and parenthood. And then you go from that to being a grandparent, and you go from that to being a great parent, and even if you are blessed, at that point, you are probably going to die. That's the reality. Psalm 90 tells us the length of our days. It says the length of our days are 70 by way of strength, 80. And what's interesting is that was written all the way back in the time of Moses. Not much has changed. 
all of, for all of the health care that we have, we also have fast food. It seems to neutralize each other. Because the average life expectancy for an American is about 80. And even if you somehow surpass that, hit 90, you're not going to make it much past that. that. That's the journey from conception to child to young adult to father, parenthood, to grandparenthood, to great-parenthood, and then that's if God has blessed you with long days, then you are gone. So we see those three basic stages, at least the initial stages, little children, young men, and fathers here. The question is, what does this mean? What is he talking about? Who is he describing in this? It becomes confusing, because if you look back in 1 John chapter 2, you'll see that he addresses the entire congregation as little children. And we're going to look at this later on in the sermon, but in some sense, all of us can be thought of as little children, as young men, and as fathers. He's writing to Christians, and in some way, we are all in those things. We'll talk about that more. Another possibility is he's talking about physical age. He's actually talking about people who are little children, people who are young men, and people who are fathers. The last interpretation possibility is he's talking about spiritual development, people who are spiritually young children, spiritually fathers, and so forth and so on. So I'm not completely decided on this matter, so I decided that we'll examine all three, and I'll let you decide for yourself which one you think it is. So let's think about if this could be actually referring to the physical age of people. He's literally talking to the little kids, the young men, and the fathers in the congregation. Well, at first I thought there's little likelihood that that's the right interpretation. But there is a very interesting parallel in 1 Timothy chapter 5. In fact, it's the only time in the Bible where Christians are called fathers. Only time. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Normally we just shorten this and we say, if you're on the male side, we call you a brother. If you're on the female side, we call you a sister. We don't usually call, I definitely haven't been akin to calling the older spiritual gentlemen here, fathers. Maybe I'll try it out, see if you like it. I don't know if you will, but I haven't done it. Neither have I been akin to referring to the older women as mothers, but again, maybe something worthy of trying out. I don't necessarily think we have to use that language, but the, the concept is there, isn't it? That people deserve respect. And here, very clearly, it's not referring to their spiritual maturity. I mean, look, well, you don't have the text, but I'll read it again. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, sometimes spiritually mature people need to be rebuked, but really the context doesn't seem to be referring to spiritually mature people. It seems to be referring to actually just older people and saying, he's talking to young Timothy and saying, hey, you are, you're an elder spiritually. You're qualified to be an elder. However, don't let anyone despise you of your youth. And there are people who are older than you in the congregation. And sometimes that you're going to have to rebuke these individuals. But when you do, make sure you do it in a very respectful way. Understanding that these people are older than you and deserve respect just for the fact that they are older than you. And, and actually, when you rebuke them, do so as you would a father. Treat them with the respect that they deserve based on their age. This is very actually comforting for... Uh, should be everyone, uh, as we grow older and whatnot, that the Bible actually honors the white hair. 
while society diminishes it. And you see that even in that text about respecting. The point being is that this text is referring to people as our spiritual fathers in Christ based on their age. And so that makes a very good parallel to what we have in 1 John 2.12 and going down to verse 14 is that he very well might be just referring to people's age. Another thing that helps us to realize that this is a possibility is I think sometimes as Baptists, we might start falling into the error of thinking that only 18 and older can be saved. And this is a strange error too that we can fall into. And here's why it's so strange. Because if I walk around this room or go around any Baptist congregation and ask people for their testimony, I'll hear this. I knew the Lord from a very small age. In fact, they might even say, there has never been a day where I have not known the Lord. And that's actually my desire and wish for all of our children. Yet sometimes we, because of our views on baptism and trying to make certain that someone is saved, we sometimes can get into this kind of error to believe that only adults can be saved. But that is complete error and is absolutely not true. Timothy himself, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says this about Timothy. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Timothy was acquainted from childhood with the scriptures which were able to save him. And this is why Christian parents and Awana, all of that, what are we doing? Why are we doing Awana out there? Because the scriptures is the power of God which can bring people to faith. Even those children out there. That's what we're doing. We want to make them wise for salvation and the scriptures can do that. God's message is powerful enough to save your children. Is able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. And to prove this, we have examples in the Bible. I think this is a very interesting example. We see in Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. This is not a letter to the unbelievers. This is a letter to believers in the church of Ephesus. He's writing to saints. And he even says those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. When you see that word in Christ Jesus, most of the time, That refers to being in union with Christ. And so if you're faithful in Christ, what it's saying is, based on your union with Christ, based on being in the vine, you are accounted as faithful. That's generally what the phrase in Christ means. It means in union with Christ. So these are saints, holy ones, who are in union with Christ, who are accounted faithful. And later on, he addresses some of these people. Who are these saints? Well, in chapter 4, he says, or chapter 5, he says this, Wives, submit to your own husband. So who are some of these saints? They're wives. Some of you are wives. That shouldn't surprise you. And then he goes on and says, husbands. Some of these saints are husbands. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, you can open the Bible there if you want to, he says this, children. Then jumping down to verse 4, he says, fathers, verse 5, bond servants, verse 9, masters. So, when we look at this, we realize that in the congregation, there are husbands and wives, children and fathers, bondservants and masters. More interesting, every time he addresses one of these people, he tells them something. So, he says to the wives, submit to your own husbands. Be submissive. Don't be an ag. Don't be a complainer. Don't make everyone's life miserable, especially your husband. But he doesn't just say that. He tells them a theological reason not to do that. He says, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. He's saying that this is the motivation that should help you to be submissive. 
And then to husbands, love your wives. Don't be a meanie. Don't be a jerk. Why? As Christ loved the church. I hope you see the pattern. There's this command addressed to these people, and then there's a theological undergirding for these people to be motivated. The husbands, just love your wives, not just because you should, but because Christ also loved the church, and you're supposed to model him. And then he says to fathers, do not provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The same idea. He's pointing them to what they should be doing based on the relationship with God. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Do all things as you would Christ, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And then finally, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Hope you see that. Every group that he addresses, he tells them something. Wives, be submissive. Husbands, love your wives. Uh, fathers, do not provoke your children, but instruct them in the Lord. Bondservants, with fear and trembling, respect your masters as you would Christ. Masters, don't treat them bad because you too have a master in heaven just like they. Well, what does he say to the children? He says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And he goes on. It's the same pattern. He gives a theological motivation for a child to obey their parents. Why would he do this if he thought that they were just vipers and diapers? If they were just complete unbelievers? He wouldn't. It makes no sense. It's like telling an unbeliever, you should love your neighbor as Christ loved the world. It doesn't make sense because they're unbelievers. That wouldn't do anything to them. The pattern is that these people are Christians, acknowledge as Christians, and then give them Christian motivation for them to do earthly obedience. Bottom line is that there is nothing in these words at all to suggest that Paul thought that Christianity, salvation, was limited to adults. He addresses these children as believing Christian children because that's what they were. And that's what they are. And so many of you were professing, believing Christian children who maybe even saw these very words and maybe you obeyed your parents, Lord willing, hopefully, because you wanted to obey the Lord, because you were, in fact, a Christian. So there's absolutely no reason to believe that Christianity and salvation and even people who were part of the church was limited to adults. There were little children, there were young men, there were fathers, all within the congregation of the church. And so what we see back in 1 John chapter 2 is this very much so could be him referring to all three groups. Just like when he refers to bond servants and masters, he's referring to real bond servants and real masters. Here, sometimes he refers to uh, wives and husbands, real wives, real husbands. Here he could simply be referring to the real little children, the real young men, and the real fathers. Another interpretation that I initially was more inclined to, but I think I'm more inclined to that first one, to be honest, was that he's referring to spiritual levels here. He's referring to people who are spiritually little children, spiritually young men, and spiritually fathers. And this kind of uh, goes back to Neil's sermon that he preached in John chapter 3. Let's remember how we physically came here. Two people got together, loved each other, and produced a child. Right? Well, how did we spiritually get here? We spiritually got here by being born again. That is why Jesus told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's no point of having theological debates about superlapsarian, infralapsarian, Arminian, and Calvinism, and all the rest. It's completely irrelevant. You're not saved. 
You're not going anywhere based on your biblical knowledge except hell. What you need is to be born again. What you need is to be saved. Jesus went straight to the heart of the matter. And that's how we begin our Christian walk. We begin our Christian walk by being born again. Unless you are born again, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. But when we are born physically, we don't come out as mature, strong adults. Instead, we come out as these little infants that are in desperate need for nutrition, care, and love. I know those parents here that know what I'm talking about. They need you to love them and to care for them and to basically do everything for them, including, well, anyways, you guys know what you got to do for the children. Well, spiritually, it's the same thing. We don't come out as strong, powerful Goliaths. We come out as babes, babes in Jesus Christ, and we need to develop. We need to grow. We need to continue to become stronger and stronger until we become full-grown men and then fathers and grandfathers of the faith. We see this in places like Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11 says this, He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers, He gave all these spiritual ministries, why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all obtain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood so that we may no longer be tossed, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves of doctrine. Why did God give us all these spiritual gifts to edify each other? What is God seeking for our edification? Not that we just feel good and feel warm and say, oh, that was wonderful. That's good too. But that's really not what he's seeking. He's seeking for you to be edified, to be built up, so that we all have unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. God wants to see you grow in Christ, in other words. Now that you're in Christ, back to the beginning of the sermon, he wants you to pay careful attention lest you drift away. Right? You're not going to grow at all if you're over there dead in the ditch. So the first thing is, don't drift away. But if you haven't drifted away, you have your anchor fastened, what does he want you to do? Just sit there and rot, grow moss all over yourself and do nothing? Say, I got the golden ticket, hallelujah, and I'll see you in heaven? No, it's not what he wants at all. He does not want that. What he wants is for all of us to obtain to mature manhood. Or think about the Great Commission. I love the Great Commission. I was beating up on Baptists a little earlier. This is why I am a Baptist. The Great Commission says what? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Who do we baptize? Disciples. Very clear Baptist text here. But we do more than that. We first make a disciple, then we baptize that disciple, then we teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission isn't just to make disciples, it isn't just to baptize them, but it's to make disciples, to baptize those disciples, and then to teach them all that I have commanded you. Everything. How to be a Christian wife, how to be a Christian single, how to what the Lord would have you to do with your money, all these various things. God wants you to know all of these things, and not just to know them, but to obey them. We're supposed to be growing in Christ. Unfortunately, though, this is not guaranteed. God did not say that this will guarantee happen to you, and if not, you're not saved. It's not true. Some people, unfortunately, do not grow in the Lord. They don't. I suspect that in any size of any congregation of any church, there are people who have not grown in the Lord. The Lord knows who you are. I don't. But the Lord knows who you are. And this ought not to be so. And the reason I think that is because the Bible addresses this in multiple places. Here's one example. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. 
For by this time, you ought to be teachers, though you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He rebukes people by saying, you ought to be teachers, but you're still babes, you're still on the milk. You ought to have moved past milk into solid food, but I have to give you milk once more. You have to look into your own heart. This sermon's not about somebody else, it's about you. Is this scripture talking about you? Is that true of you? You ought to be teachers, but you still need solid milk. I think it's all about us. I think that scripture, ultimately, just might be more extreme for some, but it's about all of us, to be honest. I think all of us can say, I have not grown as I ought to. I have not lived the way I ought to, even as a Christian. And I still have areas to grow. And God would have me to grow. So, how can we grow? Real quick here. How can we not be babes in Christ, not be people who ought to be teachers, but still need the basic principles of the oracles of God, but yet grow up and to have that mature manhood that the scripture tells us that we ought to have? Well, here's a few ways. Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. How can we grow? By Doing what Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We grow by the word of God. You cannot grow by the word of God if you do not know the word of God. You cannot know the word of God if you're never exposed to the word of God, if you don't hear it, if you don't listen to it, if you don't read it, if you don't meditate on it. We have to receive God's word to grow. Every one of you are in this room and alive, and that tells me every one of you eat. If you didn't eat, you'd be dead. You eat. And just too, so too, spiritually, we need to eat and consume God's word to grow. It's not magic. It's very simple. The more of God's word that you receive, the more you will grow. The less word of God that you receive, the less you will grow. It's a very basic principle, right? If you wanted to fatten up an animal, what'd you do? Open his mouth and shove food in If you want to grow spiritually, what should you do? Open your mouth up and shove God's word in, and you will grow. You don't receive that food, and you'll wither. Another way that we can grow is by doing what all of you are doing right now, which is regularly attending God's church. Hebrews 10, 24 says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet together. We grow by honoring God's system, which is to gather together, to be a people of God, to watch after each other, to pray with one another. Once again, this is not magic. God is the one who created the six-in-one-day principle. You see it all throughout the Bible, that there were six days that man should work, and on that seventh day, what did Jesus do? You could find Jesus somewhere every Sabbath day. It was his regular custom to meet with the people of God. The Son of God did that. So should we. That's exactly what the church continued to do. Even though Paul says that let no one judge you according to the Sabbath, 
we still see the entire church continue. They never abandoned the principle of one and six. They continued to worship one day a week on the Lord's Day. This Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a blessing to you. And so do not neglect to meet together as the habit of some. The last way that I'll mention, there's many other ways, but we're running out of time very quickly. The last way I'll mention in quick passing here is that we can grow by praying regularly. Asking you shall receive, seeking you shall find, knock and the door shall be opened to you. This is a very disturbing thought. But you are as holy as you want to be. Or put it differently, you're as holy as you ask to be. Think about that. God says, whatever you ask, you shall receive. Now we know the caveat. If you ask for a million dollars, God might say, no, that's going to be terrible for you. I'm not giving it to you. Right? We know the caveat is according to his will. But 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So we put those together. If we ask God, God, make me more holy, when is he ever going to say, not my will, don't want you more holy. I want you just as sinful as you are right now. He would never say that. If we ask God to make us more holy, he will make us more holy. If we ask God to give us more patience, he'll give us more patience. He might put us through the ringer to get there, but he'll give it to us. We are as holy as we want to be. We're as holy as we ask to be. James 4.3 says this, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. And here, it's not just ask once. It's continuously ask, continuously long. Ask God, help me. Keep going back to God over and over. Keep knocking on that door, and he will give it to you. So how can we grow? We can grow by the word of God and meditating on it. We can grow by being with God's people on his Lord's Day and other days, by the way. Not like you only have to be here on the Lord's Day. Any other day is a good thing. And you can grow by praying to the Lord. Real quick here, Augustine's view. Augustine's view is this, that these texts, the little children, fathers, and young men, refer to the entire congregation in different aspects of their lives. Okay? And what I was originally attracted to this view because, like I said, he says to them in uh, John, chapter 12, uh, John chapter 2, he calls the entire congregation little children. So maybe he's calling all the congregation fathers and, and young men. I also like this view because in some sense it's true. In some sense we're all children, right? Jesus says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Since we've all entered the kingdom of God, we all have become like children. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says that in Christ, Christ has become to us wisdom from God. To be a father is to be wise. It's to know something. Well, you know him who is pure knowledge. And so in that way, you are father. You do have knowledge. And as far as you being young men, look at verse Uh, Verse 14 of 1 John, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That's true of all of you. The word of God abides in all of us. It's the gospel that we believe. And we are all strong because of that word of God. And we all have overcome the evil one. We have strength like young men because of the power of God that abides in us. And we have all overcome the devil. So Augustine's view is not without merit. It just doesn't seem to be actually the right thing in the context. It seems to be the division of children, fathers, and young men most naturally refer to actual different people. So I probably take that first view that is actually referring to physical little children, physical young men, and physical fathers. But if you want to hold to the other views, then I will not fight you in that. We're here real quick here in closing. Let's look at the things that he says to these groups of people. He says to the young children, your sins are forgiven. He says to the fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. He says to the young men, you have overcome the evil one. And then he says to the young 
men once more, you are strong. The word of God abides in you. Let's think about this. The very fact that he says to the little children, the youngest and the weakest among them, the people who are not, probably not mature in Christ, if they are physically young children. These are the babes. He says to them, your sins are forgiven. That is the gospel. That's the good news. You don't need to become a spiritual giant to be saved. You just need to be a small child to be saved. You need to humble yourself, recognize your need, call out to Christ, and your sins will be forgiven. And your sins will be no more forgiven if you're a spiritual giant than a spiritual midget. There's that beautiful picture that we saw in John chapter 3 of people looking to the serpent. And if they look to the serpent, their sins would be forgiven. It didn't matter if you were a spiritual giant or a spiritual midget. If you looked to that serpent, your sins would be forgiven. All we have to do is look to Christ. All we have to do is trust in him. Then we are forgiven completely. Notice it's for his namesake, not for our sake. It's a complete distortion of the gospel to think that we are saved by our own merit. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And we're saved for good works, but we're never saved by good works. Verse 13, he says to fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. This is true of everyone else too. That this is salvation, to know God. To know God, that's awesome. It's wonderful that we were kicked out of the garden with Adam. And we've been brought back in through Jesus Christ. And we can know God. We can have fellowship with him. You don't just have to know about God, but you can know God. And you must know God. Otherwise, you are not saved. You must know him who is from the beginning. And then he says to young, the young men, you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the enemy of your soul. There is a true devil out there that is seeking to kill and destroy and to conquer you and your family members and everybody else. But in Christ, we can have the victory. In Christ, Jesus Christ can bind the strong man who we have been bound by. We have the victory in Christ Jesus. Praise him. Praise the Lord for that victory. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ we have overcome the evil one, that you have bound him, you have defeated him on that cross, and we have accepted your gift of salvation by faith and repentance, and you have saved us, Lord. We thank you that we can know him who is from the beginning. We thank you that our sins can be forgiven for his name's sake. Lord, I pray that if there be anyone here who does not know you, that they would come to know you. Lord, I pray that for those of us who do know you, Lord, that we would understand why we are here, how we must not drift away, how we must grow, and how to do it, Lord. Help us not to become people who blame you for our lack of growth, but realize that you are calling us upward deeper in, higher up. Help us, Lord, to meditate on your word. Help us to be faithful to your church. Help us to pray and ask for greater holiness, Lord. Transform us. Make us more holy even this very day. We pray us in Jesus' name. Amen.